This week, we're going to really dial into um, where is he? This is my, if, if I have a favorite of the four, this is, I could get up at three in the morning with no preparation and talk about this for hours. This part has just torn my life apart over the last few years, and I'll tell you why. Um, I shared this story the first week. Um, you can flip to John chapter 14 while I'm, while I'm telling the story. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. I told this story a few weeks ago, but I'll summarize it. So um, I was a youth pastor for my first 10 years as a full-time pastor. I worked with middle school and high school students. Loved it, but at a certain point, I just wasn't cool anymore, and I had to figure out something else to do. So, um, and I, I, yes, cool just escaped me. But uh, one of the things that I love to do is I encourage all of our parents at some point while their kids were between ninth and 12th grade to put enough money aside to take them on a foreign missions trip just one time. You want to change a kid's life, you want to give them experience, invest in one week of them going overseas and giving them li- their lives away to other people, serving somebody else for Jesus. They'll remember it the rest of their life. And uh, one year we went, to South Amer- we went to South America pretty frequently. And, uh, you know, we were doing our little human videos. And, uh, you know, you can listen to the podcast about what I said about those. But um, we were doing these little human videos and dramas in the street. And um, when we were done with our drama in the South American city, one of the interpreters came to me and said, this lady wants you to pray for her. So I said, okay, I was the pastor. They called me over and the lady couldn't walk. She was in a wheelchair. It was a really, you know, poor city kind of out in the middle of nowhere and um, poor little village and, and she couldn't walk. And so I didn't know what they wanted to pray for. And the interpreter said, she wants to walk. So can you pray for her? And I was like, hold up, you know, I'm not ready for that. A paper cut, a cold, um, she's having a bad morning. Like I felt like I could handle those things. And I immediately felt very inadequate. I had never prayed for somebody that couldn't walk before, let alone I didn't know the formulas. I didn't know the special codes. I didn't know, do I touch her on the forehead? Do I touch her on the hand? What do I do? You know, I didn't know. I didn't know what to do. I was so stressed out of my mind. I did pray for her. I'm, I had no, I don't remember what I prayed. Um, but I, 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 I prayed for her. And I do remember praying very, you know, it was more of a, like, God, dear God, please, please. You know, all these people are watching. Please. You know, it was kind of one of those type. You know, I wasn't, I had nothing stored up in my own memory banks. Whatever I prayed was something that God helped me think of right on the spot in real time. I hadn't fasted 14 days beforehand. I hadn't spent seven hours in the Bible that morning. I was the least likely candidate, I thought, to be involved in whatever was going on there. So I got done praying. I didn't feel anything electrical. I didn't have goosebumps. I did nothing. I get done praying, the interpreter, you know, tells the lady, well, the pastor prayed for you, now get up and start walking. And maybe it was her, not me, I don't know. This lady gets up out of her wheelchair, and it looked really awkward the first couple seconds, but I'm telling you, she took a few steps, and with every single step, you could see and almost hear physically, the, whatever was not working in her legs started working. You could see, actually, her legs that were all scrawny, the atrophy, you could see them start to, like, fill out, and you know, within two or three minutes, she was kind of like, like shuffling up and down the street like this. And I didn't know if I was being put on, if this was fake, but by the reaction of the entire community who started leaving their businesses and dragging people out, they knew who she was. And it was a bona fide miracle. I mean, this lady started walking and I, two things, I was amazed and I was confused. I was like, this is really, really cool, but I have no idea how that happened. And I'm a logical guy. That's what makes Christianity very difficult for me personally because I'm a see it and then I believe. And even when I see it, I'm usually skeptical. I need to, I don't like to reverse engineer things. I like to engineer them and, you know, I don't like to commit to something until I can test it all out. And so I came home completely perplexed and my kids in my youth ministry were looking at me like, man, this is, man, God uses Pastor Phil, this great stuff. We need, you know, and they're expecting that they're going to see more of this type of thing. 
And I had no idea what to do. I didn't know how it started. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't feel qualified to do it. I did not consider myself to be spiritual enough or godly enough to do it. And I came home trying to reverse engineer that experience and figure out what in the world happened there. And was that just a freak occurrence or is that something that's maybe more normal? And if it is something that's possible for normal, how do I ever get involved in the flow of that for the rest of my life? And out of some of that confusion, um, I was referred to, uh, it's not really a friend, but an associate of mine who travels, his name's Shane, and he, I, I just kind of emptied this all out to him. I said, man, I'm so scared out of my mind. I don't know what happened. I know God did it, obviously. I know I didn't have nothing to do with it, but I didn't have everything to do with it. So what, how did that happen? And he showed what I'm about to share with you this morning to me. He took me through some scriptures. And for the last, I don't know, seven, eight years since I've known this, this turned my life upside down. And um, I'm hoping that maybe if I share this with you, some light bulbs will click and it'll make sense to you. It's, we kind of have to understand where the Holy Spirit is and kind of who I am a little bit. Let me take you through this kind of quickly this morning. Um, he, the first verse he took me to is the verse we've been going to every week, John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. It's something that Jesus himself said about the Holy Spirit while he was here on earth. And Jesus is an expert on the Holy Spirit, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, together they are God. And this three in one. So anything that Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, we can count on man, he knows. He knows the deal. So here's one of the things Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind, he's talking to his disciples who were totally attached to Jesus and just trying to break the news to them that, guys, our run is about to come to an end. I've got to go away. And where I'm going, you can't come along with me now. And they're really getting panicky because he was their everything. So here's what he says. He says, I will ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate or that Greek word paraclete. Paraclete means the one who will come alongside you. He'll never leave you. He's the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world can't receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. Now, here's the part that Shane showed to me that I really want to focus on this morning. But you you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. So what Jesus was saying was up to this point in history, you, you know the Holy Spirit because he's with you. He's alongside of you now. But I'm going to go away and there's going to come some point in the very near future He's going to be in you. Now, that type of language gets really kind of weird. And it is weird. It's supernatural, not natural. What did Jesus mean by the fact that the Holy Spirit would live inside of us? I always felt like I got ripped off because I wasn't the guy that got to live when Jesus lived, right? I was like, oh, man, why, did I, why didn't he pick me? Why couldn't I have been one of those guys? My life would be so much better today if Jesus could just be in the flesh with me all the time, Right? That would be, in my mind, I think that would be the best possible way things could be for me. But two chapters later, Jesus says to the disciples who essentially asked the same question, what are we going to do if you're gone? He says, it's best for you that I go. What? He says, because if I don't go, I can't send the Holy Spirit to you. But if you'll let me go, I'll send him to you and it'll be better for you. What Jesus was saying is, look, as a human being, I am in one place at one time. I'm available sometimes and unavailable other times. I can be near you. I can be beside you. I can be around you, but I can't be in you. You know what would be better than even me being here with you guys, he's saying? If I go away and I send you the Holy Spirit, he's got power. All the power you've seen me do and then some, and he can be in you, and you can take him with you all the time. Now, if I'm sitting there hearing it for the first time, I'm really weirded out by all that. That makes no sense. But let's unpack that a little bit further. We have to go back to Genesis to kind of figure this out. Here's the big idea. This is the one thing I want you to go home with. Where's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is not just out there somewhere. Quite the contrary. He makes his home in 
every man, woman, and child who chooses to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So where is he? Not just out there somewhere. Up there somewhere, wandering around. He is living right. If you have ever made a decision to make Jesus Lord of your life, you know where he is right now? He's inside of you. He's living in you. Right now, he is in your spirit, communicating with you, giving you access to God. There's a little soundtrack that he's playing right now. It's probably very different than the voice that's always talking inside your head about you. He's in you. So what do we do kind of to get him more out of me? So we're going to talk about this morning. God is three in one. He's God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now here's the thing. Because I am made in the likeness and image of God, the Bible also teaches that I'm three in one. I have a body, I have a soul, and I have a spirit. Now, because of our time limitation this morning, there's a lot of these sentences that really should be entire sermons in and of themselves. But if I do my job this morning, I hope I give you enough things to think about and enough verses to go and look to on your own time that this will keep your mind occupied during the week and you can dig some of these things out for yourself. But one thing I do want to point out here, let's be very clear. I'm going to talk a lot about how I'm like God, but being like something doesn't mean I am something. Does that make sense? We're like God, but we don't believe that we are God. We're not little gods. Yikes. Right? But the Bible says I was made like God. And one of the ways that I believe that we're made like God is that we were kind of made like a little three in one. In the same way that God is three in one, we can't understand all of it. I tried to explain the Trinity the first week and failed miserably. And I admitted that. I don't know how to explain the Trinity. I mean, it's infinite. I don't know how to totally explain that. We know more than nothing but less than everything about the Trinity. Um, But here's, I think, a good example. We have to go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. You know the whole creation story? God made stuff. He said, let there be light. And there's this really cool stuff that happens. Towards the end, he gets ready to make human beings. And he makes this statement that you have to read very carefully and look at the grammar of it. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Here's what he didn't say. I am going to make man in my image. Sounds a little bit different when you say, let us make man in our image than when I say, let me make man in my image. Who was God speaking? God was trying to drive home this point. It's, this is coming from the whole Godhead here. God, the Father, God, Son, Holy Spirit. Guys, let's make... He didn't say guys. I'm just, that's very inexact, but I don't know how that all works. Again, here's my language failing me. Trying to extri- explain an infinite concept with finite words. Guys, let's, we're going to make man in our image. Kind of the way that we operate. Let's make man like us. And wouldn't it make sense that if God is this kind of mysterious three-in-one, you can't really separate them all out, but they all have their unique... He made us three-in-one. Well, how do you know that for sure? I can support it for you biblically. The Bible tells us. Flip, you know, in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, this is Paul writing now. He says, May the God of peace make you holy in every way and make your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus comes again. The NIV says it this way. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you have a body, you have a soul, you have a spirit. Let's look at these things briefly. You could spend years talking about every one of these things. Okay, whether you're a believer or not a believer in God, whether you follow Jesus or you don't, whether you are a Christian, a Protestant, an evangelical, a Catholic, an atheist, an agnostic, a skeptic, you all all have a body, soul, and a spirit. Every one of us does. Every single one of us. Because we were all made by God. We were all created in his image. Here's this template. I've got to bring my handy-dandy flip chart out again. I I love these things. So you have, first of all, you have a body. These are three concentric circles. This is like if you were an everlasting gobstopper and we did a cross-section of you. Right. If I looked at myself as kind of three concentric circles, 
have a body. The, the word used in the Bible a lot for it is soma. Um, I have a body. Well what's, well, what's in my body? Your body consists of your talents, your five senses, sight, smell, hearing, taste, speech, and touch, your physical attributes, and your behavior. We all have a body. And if we want to be morbid about it, the moment we're born, it begins dying. Right? It's not perfect, is it? Some of you think you have the perfect body. Thumbs up. I know that I don't. I've come to terms with it. My mirror tells me every day I don't. But we have a body. All of us do. We have a shell. And it has attributes. It has, you know, it has talents. It has senses. It behaves. But it's not immortal. As a matter of fact, the Bible says our body is full of sin. But the body doesn't have a brain, right? I know why a bird does what a bird does. It has a bird brain, right? (laughs) But in addition to our body, we also have what the Bible calls our soul. We also have a soul. The word that the Bible uses a lot for that is psyche. Maybe you've heard of that term before. It's where we get words like psychology, psychiatry. The Bible also uses the word heart interchangeably with soul. So if you read through your Bible and it talks about heart, soul, it's talking about this next layer. This is, everybody has a soul. Your soul consists of a couple of things. It consists of your mind, your brain, which is your thoughts, your imagination. It consists of your emotions, which are your feelings, your attitudes, your stereotypes, your prejudices, your moods, your opinions, and your will. That's what belongs in your soul. That's what goes on there. So we have a body, we have a soul. And they are connected. We can't totally separate them. That would be really scientifically weird. But they have unique functions. For instance, the body doesn't do what it wants to do. The body does what the soul tells it to do. Right? Doesn't make it, you know, you don't have a foot that just wanders off in the middle of the night without telling your brain. That's not the way that it works. I know this sounds very clinical. This is going this is so, to make so much sense as we go along this morning. You also have, and everybody has, a spirit. Now, there are some people that teach, I don't have a spirit until I'm saved. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that all of us, every single human being has a spirit. The word that the Bible says is pneuma. It's that thing that separates me from everything else God made. Pneuma means breath or wind that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's only one thing that God made that he breathed his own breath into, and God's breath is eternal. And what separates you and me from dogs and cats and snakes and trees and rocks, among other things, is that we are the ones that God breathed his breath into. He didn't breathe it into us upon salvation because 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which we'll get to in a second, says when you get saved, God's spirit is fused together with your spirit, which means you already had one. And when you get saved, God's spirit is joined together with the one that you already had. It's my spirit that will live forever. It'll either live with God or it'll live separated from God. The Bible says we'll get a new body. We'll get a new way of thinking. The Bible sometimes lumps body and soul together with this word called self. That's our self. Well, who am I? I'm, who is myself? It's, it's what I think, how I think, and what I do with what I think. That's, that's self. And the Bible says self is sinful. You were born that way. But we all have a spirit. The Bible says pneuma. It's the very breath of God. It's part of me. and It'll continue on eternally even after my body and soul are dead. So what's the relationship? Let's look at what's the relationship between body and soul. Let me give you a couple statements real quick and support it with Bible so you know it's not just my opinion. This is what the Bible teaches. The Bible sometimes groups our body and soul together into one entity and names it my sinful nature. Those two words are very important. Nature means what's natural. You know what that teaches? It is very, you know, the most natural thing you can do is your own thing, right? It's just by nature to be sinful, to do what I think is best regardless of what God thinks. That was natural. Here's what the Bible says about it. 
It says in Galatians chapter 5, I, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your life. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Holy Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so you don't feel like you're free to carry out your good intentions. Does this make sense to you? Here's what it says. The Bible says, even if you choose to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, it doesn't mean you're going to stop automatically craving to do evil things. Paul says there's these two forces fighting out inside all the time. But if you think it's the Holy Spirit tempting you to do bad things, please think again. That's not what, that's not what he's doing. It's your sinful nature. And he continues on. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross. Nailed to the cross and crucified them there. Since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit leading every part of our lives. What this means is that I was born with a sinful nature. Watch this. I didn't come out of the womb and have to be taught to be upset when I didn't get my own way. It's almost like it came naturally. Now, I wasn't there when I, or I was there when I was a baby. I don't remember any of it. Thank God. It's a horrifying experience if I remember all of that. However, I can tell I have an 18-month-old. No one taught Chase Andrew Nower to throw a fit when things weren't exactly how he wanted them. Somehow he just knew that if it's too hot, I'm a fuss. If it's too cold, if I'm tired, if I'm not tired, if I'm hungry, if I'm done being hungry. Anytime he, the boy didn't get what he wanted, I didn't teach him to do that. I didn't say, now Chase, here's what I want you to do. Anytime you don't get what you want, I need you to just throw a fit until you manipulate the rest of us to giving you whatever you want. <laughs> he came out and so did you and I naturally wired to get what we want and be miserable when we don't and try and maneuver life to cater to us. It's called our sinful nature. We came out bent towards getting what we want. Doing what we, we didn't come out wanting to submit ourselves to anybody else's idea for what we should want. And that's this massive problem that we have because our body and our soul are filled with sin and they're always going to do what they want to do. And they don't want to submit to anything else besides what they want. And that's the struggle. Here's, here's a couple quick statements. My body using Bible language, is a slave to the soul. The body doesn't have an opinion. The foot doesn't argue with the brain and say, I don't want to walk over. The brain just says, walk over there. The body never does what it wants. The body takes orders directly and exclusively from the soul. That's how things, things work. My body is incapable of acting independently of my soul. My body can't go off and do its own thing. I'm glad that it can't. I'm glad I don't wake up in the morning and have to go track my hands down. You know, and find out what they were doing all night. You know, that's not how it works. The Bible says this. Jesus says this. It's great. Um, in, in the NLT, I'll read it to you in the NLT, and then I'll tell you what it says in the NIV. You, you brood of snakes, Jesus said to people who weren't snakes, but that were acting like them. How could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For, because whatever's in your heart determines what you say. In the NIV, it says, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth, Speak, does this start to make sense? And over Jesus said, don't blame it on your mouth and say, oh, I didn't mean it. You did mean it. You decided in here what you really meant. It just slipped out your mouth when you couldn't control yourself. You understand why self-discipline is this awesome fruit of the Holy Spirit that he brings? You know, what really I need is discipline of self, not indulgence of self. If you had a spoiled, rotten kid, you don't want him to just do whatever he wants to reward him. You need to discipline him, right? Myself doesn't need to get what it wants. Myself needs to be disciplined self-discipline. I can't do it myself. I need something else for that. But Jesus says, here's the, here's the deal. Here's how it works. Whatever you're thinking, here's what he's really saying. Whatever fills you, controls you. You're filled with anger, you're going to act angry. 
angrily. Are you filled with jealousy? You're going to act with jealousy. If you're filled with depression, you're going to act out that way. If you're filled with feeling unforgiven, you're going to live that way. So that's kind of what he's driving at there. My body feeds information to the soul, and the soul determines what I do with the information. In other words, well, how do things get from here to here? Well, the senses. Something I see, something I hear, something I taste, something I touch. I feed these stimuli. I know, psychological word, but I feed those things into my brain, my mind, my thoughts, my emotions, then decide, because my will's in there, decides what I do with it. Jesus proves this. Here's what Jesus says. You have heard the commandment that says you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is redefining an old commandment. And he's saying, here's the issue. You want to blame it on your eyes. Well, my eyes, I can't help it. I don't want to lust, but my eyes. No, your eyes looked, and the looking wasn't the problem. It was the lusting that was the problem. The looking happens in the body. The body was just, sometimes the body looks at what the mind tells it to, and sometimes, friends, it's just as put in front of your eyes, and you didn't mean to look at it, but it's there, and it goes into your soul anyway. Sometimes you didn't want to hear it, but you heard it. What you do with it is where the really, the, you know, that's the crux of the matter. Here's what Jesus is saying. It wasn't, it wasn't your eyes' fault. It was because you looked with lust, and that's where the sin occurred because of what happened in your soul. Just because you saw it doesn't mean you have to sin about it. Just because you feel it doesn't mean you have to sin. Prove it. Well, the Bible makes this statement. Be angry, but don't sin. In other words, you might be feeling angry here, but you're still in control of what you decide to do with your anger. Well, I feel hopeless. How do I ever control that? Well, why? that's what Jesus offers. That's what Jesus offers every man, woman. You know, of course you can't. There are many religions that teach you how to control this with a lot of success usually, but it's not perfect because if it fails even one time, it's not foolproof. What if I could tell you that there is a way that the soul, rather than being in charge, could actually be in submission to something else that will never steer it wrong and just pass those instructions on to the body. That's what's offered to us through Jesus. So here's the universal problem. We've concluded this is who I really am. I'm all these things, a body, soul, and spirit. But here's the problem. This is always sinful and this is sinful. It's just going to produce sinful stuff. Even if I try and discipline it and make it behave, I'm going to stumble and slip back and fall. Here's the problem, the universal problem. And Paul wrote it out beautifully. I won't try and say it better than he. Here's the way Paul wrote it out. In Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 24, at this point in Paul's life, he has accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He's lived some life as a follower of Jesus. However, he's in turmoil because he's looking at the way that he lives and he feels and he thinks and saying, if I'm really saved, then why do I still have all this yuck I'm detecting? Why do I keep doing stuff I know I shouldn't be doing? Why do I keep thinking impure thoughts? I thought I was saved, and if I'm saved, I certainly couldn't be struggling with this. And Paul writes it out this way. I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but I'm finding there's another power within me still that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. And he's saved at this point. Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? Now, I I should add that as he's feeling unusable, he's writing the New Testament. You think God, you think you have to be perfect for God to use you. Here's a guy who feels like he might not even be saved. And as he's writing out this journal entry, it's now in the best-selling book of all time, part part of God's divine revelation to us. God was using him even in this moment of doubt. And here's what he's saying. 
I assumed maybe that when I got saved that all the sinful urges that I had would just go away. That would make it so easy, wouldn't it? The easiest way to stop sinning is just not want to sin anymore. And I don't mean to suggest to you that in journeying with Jesus that he won't help change those cravings because he will. But you need to be very aware that as long as we still have the sinful body and the sinful soul, they can't in and of themselves be made completely immortal, pure, and perfect forever. And that's why I'm looking forward to heaven because I'm going to be made again with a new body and a new soul that won't have that sinful capacity to it. And I'll be able to live, live in uninterrupted presence with Jesus. So here's what, this is the universal problem. Here's the question. How do I ever live the holy life the Bible says I need to live if there's this war going on inside of me even after I get saved, if I can still produce sin? How do I, how do I ever get around that? The next verse he answers, he says, but thank be to God through Jesus Christ. So even my body, even though it's a prisoner to sin, my spirit is alive. I'm going to make my spirit and my soul and my body a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He recognized there wasn't, it wasn't about going through a bunch of self-help programs or reading a bunch of books or just having lectures with himself all the time where he beats himself up. He recognized that there's something else alive inside of him that will never steer him down that path. And that's what he drives at with the Holy Spirit. So how do I ever live a holy life that God describes as possible and necessary when I still have this body and soul filled with sin? Here's the answer. I must let the Holy Spirit guide my entire life. My spirit, the spirit must be king. My soul must be the servant of my spirit and my body, its slave. Spirit has to be in charge. I have to using some language in the New Testament, I have to learn to walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, think by the Spirit, talk by the Spirit. If I will trust the Holy Spirit to determine my thoughts, my emotions, my moods, my feelings, my decisions, my will, and then it would just stand to, to follow that, then my actions will line up because my body and my actions and behaviors just flow out of whatever I'm thinking, feeling, and telling them to do. Then I will satisfy this desire to live the life that God intended me to live. I just can't do it independently. So here's, here, here's a question. Letting the Holy Spirit guide uh, my entire life means to think the thoughts of the Spirit, to let, feel the feelings of the Spirit, and use the words of the Spirit, and to behave like the Holy Spirit. Easier said than done, right? <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. Um, here's a beautiful thing. Paul uses that phrase, let the Holy Spirit guide your life. Romans 6, 17 and 19 says this. Thank God. Once you were slaves to sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we've given you. Now you're free from your slavery to sin. You become slaves to righteous living. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I'm using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led you even deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be a slave to righteous living so you'll become holy. So let's talk about the spirit real quick. A brief examination of the spirit. How does that get inside of me? Now, here's, here's this stuff. This was all cool to me when Shane started breaking this down. I mean, I'm like, that's cool. Three circles on my piece of paper. You know, your body looks like the outline of one of my trash can lids, and the soul looks like the outline of our really giant mixing bowl and the smaller mixing bowl. That's fantastic. That's revolutionary. Glad we could write that in there. Um, but what does that have to do with me? Here, here's the stuff that really got to the, the meat of the potatoes. Um, the Holy Spirit, number one, the Holy Spirit becomes one with, is fused together with, my spirit, the very moment I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It all hinges on this verse, guys. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. It's Paul writing this. He goes through this analogy where he talks about, the re- he makes an analogy that my relationship to Jesus is very similar to a husband's relationship with his wife. And the relationship that Jesus wants to have with all of us is one that is intimate in that way. In fact, he says, if you're, if you're married... 
he, he challenges the men. He's like, look, if you're married to your wife, why in the world would you go out and have sex with a prostitute and then come home and try and lay with your wife? I'm sorry I'm being a little graphic, but that's what Paul asks. Would your wife be okay with that? No. Because essentially what he's saying, and again, I'm, I'm sorry I should have prepared you better for this, but when you're sleeping with a prostitute and then go sleeping with your wife, it's pretty much like your wife is having to be partner with everything else that you're doing. That's just the way that you're made. Like, so why would you say you want to have an intimate relationship with Jesus and then go be partners with all kinds of other sinful stuff? It doesn't work that way. And he says, and the, way I'm, the reason I'm telling you this is because, verse 17, when you become one with Jesus, your spirit is fused together with the Holy Spirit in the same way a husband and wife are fused together in marriage. And what that means is the moment you are saved, the Holy Spirit is no longer just out there somewhere, but until you are saved, he is out there hovering. And upon your permission, he's, Holy Spirit is not, I know this is going to sound really, I'll just say it. Holy Spirit's not a rapist. He's not forcing himself into your spirit. He waits for you to invite him in. He's a gentleman. He doesn't possess people. He's just there loving you, waiting for your invitation to come and live inside. And the moment that I'm saved, the Holy Spirit fuses himself together. That's the Greek. The Greek translation of to unite with means to fuse two things together so that we become, our spirit becomes one with the spirit of God. So the moment you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I, I hope you can get this. All of the contents of the spirit of God are fused together with your spirit <laughs> and they're accessible to you. Well, pastor, I'm not living that way. Well, that's the problem with a lot of us. You don't know what you got. It's like you bought this $5,000 laptop to open email. Well, I don't need all those other applications. Well, you've never used them yet. Well, God, I need more power. It's in you. God, I need more hope. I need more love. I need, I need to get over this fear. Please send me. It's in you. It's here. Think it, feel it, say it, do it. It's here. It's right here. And what I found is when I, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. When I, this is what I started figuring. So maybe when I prayed for this lady, the Holy Spirit, the power to heal, that's the contents. Well, the Bible tells me that's part of the contents of the Spirit of God that was living in me. Now, I didn't own it. I didn't make it. I was just the middleman. And in that moment, I was like, I don't know what to pray. God, please give me something. I opened up a, I don't want to use the word channel because we'll get all weirded out. I opened up a pipeline, a pathway. Well, sidebar. The enemy's just one click away from the truth usually. Why do you think he wants to talk? Why do you think people talk about channeling? You think it works any different? Good and bad enter me the same way. Why do you think the Bible talks about guarding your heart and mind? Because that's one doorstep away from your spirit. Anyway, back to the story. Um, so why it made started to make more sense that if healing was really here, it wasn't out there somewhere, maybe it was in here somewhere, and in my panic, and, and I might have been imperfect up here, but this was okay. I might have been distracted up here and not ready. I might have been thinking about where we were going to go and, and have ice cream later that afternoon, but the spirit was, he was ready. And in this crisis moment, I'm like, oh, I better, I don't, I'm not prepared for this. And I was really ready. Okay, if there's anything, I was thinking, I was saying, if there's anything up there that you can give me, he's saying, no, I'm right here. Listen, I'll give you the words to say. And if you'll just speak them out, I can open up a pipeline between the spirit where my power is to heal and the person who needs it. And I, had, I did it accidentally. Here's the cool thing. You don't have to understand any of this to flow in it. But when you understand it, it makes it even a lot more powerful and effective. So 
accidentally, I started unpacking this. I'm like, hmm. So the Holy Spirit becomes one with me. And upon salvation, number two, I have access to all the contents of God's Spirit inside of me. This is wild. This is not an exclusive list. Let me just very quickly rattle off to you a few things that are in your spirit that are fused together in your spirit when you get saved. Knowledge. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 10. We talked about it last week. The Holy Spirit, it says, nobody knows God's thoughts except his spirit. But God has freely given us access to his thoughts through his spirit when we get saved. In other words, I can't ever get to God's thoughts on my own. I'm I'm finding out he's infinite. But if I have the Holy Spirit within me, this little Wi-Fi... Well, it's faster than Wi-Fi. He has access to all of it. And he's living in me. And at times that I'm tuned into him or when God decides to, he can take things I don't know, drop them through his spirit up into my thought stream. That's where you end up with these ideas from God that you didn't come up with on your own. You don't know where they came from. I'll tell you where they came from. From God through his spirit into your thoughts. Well, how do I think more of God's thoughts? Well, you have to set, set your mind on the spirit. Got to tune into this because you have a choice. You have a little radio station here. You get to tune whatever frequency you want. But if you tune into here very frequently, guess what? You'll find the station quicker. You'll hear it more clearly and you'll act out of it more accurately. Make sense? So knowledge, fruit of the spirit. The fruit that which the spirit produces, doesn't it make sense that when I got saved, that came, I need more of the love of God. I need more of the joy. Well, it's all in there. We just need to get it up out of there into the way that you live. This explains why I could be a Christian and saved and just be grouchy and miserable. Which is nobody in here, of course. But those other people we know, <laughs> they need to. And, 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 and just, and again, parenthetically, it's not fruits of the Spirit. It's not like nine different things. It is a fruit that has nine different characteristics. It's not like you get some of it, but not all of it. It's all in there. It's in here. It's in. You got it all. Well, I don't feel like I'm living it all. See, that's, and that's where we're at. That's our journey. The rest of my life is trying to figure out how to let this be in charge and not this. Right? I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven, but I feel miserable, says Paul. And he concluded that the only way to fix this is to let these guys stop doing what they want and make them submit to this. Because what he thought is when he got saved that this just took charge and everything happened automatically. But he discovered that even after I got saved, I still have to make a decision right here as to whether I'm going to do what I think is best or whether I'm going to submit what I think is best to the spirit that lives inside of me. And that is our challenge. And that's your opportunity. And that's your invitation. There's power in there. Paul said there's power, love and self-discipline in there. Paul said God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he has given us a spirit of power, of Love and I love it. Self-discipline. How practical. The ability to get these guys to stop doing their own thing doesn't come from that. How do you think you could get your sinful self to be in charge of the sinful self? It doesn't work. That's why we fail all the time. It's like trying to get you. It's like letting your letting your uh, spoiled child say, you know what? Spoiled child, I'm going to let you just be in charge. You make the rules to make yourself behave. They're going to bend it their own way all the time. I can't discipline myself with myself. I need something perfect to discipline myself because myself is really good at fooling me. I don't think that's logically even accurate. Myself and me. You know what I'm saying? We need self-discipline. It comes from the spirit and it's inside of our spirit when we get saved. True worship. All my worshipers was worship me in what? Spirit and in truth. I don't feel like I can worship God. Well, just listen. The spirit will help you. Righteousness is in there. Holiness is in there. Even healing is here. I can't even I can't preach about this this morning. I don't have time. So Acts chapter three, right? 
which comes after Acts chapter 2, when the apostles... I know that's revolutionary right there. (laughs) So the apostles have this new experience with the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about it next week. Peter and John are on their way to pray, minding their own business. They're not in church. This is great. They're not in church. They're on their way to do what they're... They're running errands on the way to the temple. Pass a guy who says, give me... A beggar who couldn't walk. Here's what he says. I, I sang the song when I was in children's church. He said, help me, help me walk. Or give, he didn't say help me walk. He said, give me money. I need silver. I need gold. Peter turns from him without any preparation and says the following statement that might make more sense now. Silver and gold I don't have in my possession. But what I do, here's a key word, have. I'll give you. What did he want? Healing. He says, I have it. What I have, I'll give you. Well, how did he know he had it? He, it wasn't anything he made up. He recognized the spirit living in him. He's like, I don't have money, but I have healing. It's not mine to give away, but here you go. And he said, name of Jesus Christ, not my name, not in the name of Peter, who's conducting church services down there and come to my church. No, or come to my church and I'll heal you there. And we can talk about it and I can get paid more. No, he says, I have it. I'm going to give it to you. You want to start turning your regular days into adventures? Figure out how this works. You won't have to pass people off to meet needs. Because isn't our job as the church to equip you to do this outside of here? You start spending some time daydreaming about this, your life will be anything but dull, I promise you that. So how do, how do things get into my spirit? Oh, I've really got to hurry. Okay. How do, i got to really hurry. How do things get into my spirit? I might need to extend this to next, next week. Let me do this part yet because this is, this is crazy. Anything that enters my spirit must, it makes sense. Anything that gets in here has to, it can't just bypass everything, right? It has to go through body, soul, and spirit. This is wild. Um, finally, my, so anything that enters my spirit must first gain access to my body and then my soul. And finally, my soul has to invite into my spirit through my beliefs, wills, feeling. Here's an example. How did I get saved? There's this cool verse in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Some of you have heard of it. It talks about how we get saved with your mouth. You confess that Jesus is Lord, and in your heart you believe that God raised him from the dead, and then you'll be safe. Watch this. With your mouth, which is pr- where? Confess, to speak it out, that Jesus is Lord. And in your heart, you believe that God raised him from the dead, and then you will be, which really happens here, right? So anything that wants to access the deepest part of me. And good and bad come in the same way. Let, let me show you. Um, a girl goes and tries, to, tries on a, a size two pair of jeans and doesn't fit into them and walks out of there and someone says, man, you are fat. You need to lose some weight. She hears something. You're fat. You need to lose, lose some weight. The facts aren't true. But in her mind, you know, she hears it, goes into her soul. They said, I'm fat. Then she chooses to believe it. I must be fat. And then she lives back out a depressed life. Good and bad go in the same way. That's why you've got to guard those things. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you will be saved. I'm going to skip right to the end, and I'm going to go. So how do things get back out of there? That's really kind of the challenge for all of us. How do things get back out of there? Let me give you an example, and then maybe break it down. Um, here's an example. So there is a, another experience that the Bible talks about in Acts chapter 2, and four, three other times in Acts. that happens after salvation, didn't happen at salvation, called the baptism, the immersion in the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that the evidence of that happening is speaking in other tongues. And if we just looked at that real practically, here was the situation. The disciples did not want Jesus to go back to heaven. However, at that moment, they were really inspired to go reach the world finally. 
Like Jesus was trying like for three years to get them to go, go, go. Well, we went and we messed up or we can't go without you. But I got questions and well, I'm going to I'm going to go. I'm going to follow you. You're not ready. And then they deny him. And they had all these problems. And finally, he senses, oh, these guys are ready. They really are ready to take the world. And right before they get ready to rush out and take the world, he says, but wait, don't go tell people about me yet. Now, when has Jesus ever said that to a rabid evangelist? He says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. I'm going to give you something you need to make this really work. Is that when you're going to come back and set up shop and be king and we'll be all in your cabinet? No. Just wait. For how long? Until. Until what? Until I give you the power. Well, how will we know? Oh, I've got a creative way to, for you to know that you'll have it. And what we find out the creative way is, is they're waiting. They see something that looks like fire. It doesn't say it was fire. It just says it looked like it because they didn't have a word to describe it. They heard something that sounded like a rushing mighty wind. It doesn't say it was a rushing mighty wind. It just says that's the closest approximation. And all of a sudden, they started speaking in languages they couldn't understand. They figured this must be it. Because all of a sudden, I am fluent in a language that I didn't have Rosetta Stone for. I didn't go to school for. But I can just speak it fluently and inexhaustibly. I don't even really understand. That's just, it's weird. Of course it's weird. But they need, God needed to have some type of evidence so they didn't stay in the room forever and got out and did what they were supposed to do. Well, how did that happen? Watch. If I'm, the only thing the Bible says, well, how do we, well, I want the same thing. What do I need to do? Well, wait and seek. That's about all we've got to go on. I wait on God for it and I seek. Seeking happens right here. Seek means to set my mind upon. And if I set my mind upon seeking, whether it's car keys or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it tends to reason my body is going to come along for the ride. So I have opened up a pipeline right here. And so here's what happens. The Bible says the evidence, so somewhere in this process, God deposits this baptism of the Holy Spirit, immerses my spirit in the Holy Spirit. Well, how do I know that that happened? You will pull up from your spirit into your thought stream a language you did not study, you don't understand, you don't know what to do with. And you will just release it through your mouth and it'll come out as words. And that's the evidence. It's not the baptism, it's the evidence that it's in there. So those of you, and there are some of you in the room who say, well, I speak in tongues, I receive that. Here's my question. You mean to tell me that you are capable in this very moment if you wanted to, which is another great thing, if you wanted to, so you're in control of this, because um, the Spirit's subject to you. So if you wanted to right now, you could pull up from your spirit a language that you didn't study, that you don't entirely understand. You could speak fluently in it for hours on end. <laughs> what else is in there that you're not pulling up and using? You mean to tell me you can do that, but there's healing in here, there's knowledge in here, there's power in here, there's all these other things in here? Wouldn't you at least want to figure out and learn with God how you can pull some of those things up too and think about them and feel them and say them and do them and live that kind of a life? I would hope you'd be at least a little curious as to how to do that. Well, how do I do that? I skipped like four pages of notes, I'm sorry. How do I do that? I'll give you these last words. I'll close my notes that I know that I'll be done because I know the school needs to get in here in a couple minutes. I'll give you two things. Oh, Pastor, you made it sound a lot easier than it actually is. Okay, well, so how do I get there? Let me give you some unchurchy words. Practice. How do I listen to the Spirit and really know that it's Him? And get, You have to practice. You, there's this great book written like 500 years ago. It's on my bookshelf. I love it. A guy named Brother Lawrence, Practicing the Presence of God. It takes practice. You know, it took a long time until I could recognize my vo wife's voice out of the crowd. But the more that I heard it, the more quickly I could separate. My son's cry. I mean, my son's 18 months old, but there could be 10 crying babies. I could pick his voice out of the crowd because I practiced. <laughs> so two things I tell you. Number one, tune in. Tune in. Because, you know, like, here's the analogy. Like in the air right now, there's all these radio waves, right? 
there's a million, well, not a million, there's probably dozens of radio stations that their channel is being broadcast across the room right now. Why don't you hear it? Oh, you don't have a device in front of you right now that's tuned into that particular station. But you can tune into any one, you one at any time, but on that one device, you can only tune into one at a time. When you got saved, you received this, for lack of better term, you received a little radio receiver in your spirit. The ability at any time to tune in to what is being broadcast from the Holy Spirit, to hear what he's saying, to feel what he's feeling, to have access to real needs in real time, to be tied in and tapped into his emotions. And you just have to learn to practice. It sometimes takes a long time for me, especially if it's a stressful day with a lot of things going on. It's really tough for me to kind of get this stuff quieted down and hear this. What I've also found is that at times this one can get really loud too. Even louder. Sometimes I'll even be listening to this one not even knowing that that's the station I'm listening to. Haven't you ever been like, man, that must have been a God thing, even though at the time I didn't realize it. So tune in. Well, how do you make it more practical? What do I do? Then uh, here's the other, only other way. I need this, this is what Shane shared with me that's helped me a lot. It's not a law. It's just something. Think it, feel it, say it, do it. How do I get stuff out of here and my spirit and, and live it out? And trust me, if you start understanding more of this and thinking about this, start rereading the New Testament. It will blow your mind. Some of these verses make so much more sense to me now that I understand the relationship here and where all the struggle really is. Think it, feel it, say it. Do. What does that mean? Think the thoughts of the Holy Spirit. Feel the feelings. When's the last time you said, Holy Spirit, help me feel a little bit of the way that you do about lost people? This person that's driving me nuts at work that I'm really angry at, God, can you let me borrow your feelings for them right now? <laughs> why, do you think, why do you think Jesus said, you got enemies? Pray for them. You know why? For you first. Because what the problem is, is when we have enemies, there's a big barrier right in our soul. That's not also existing right here. When I pray for somebody, I'm setting my mind contrary to what my soul wants. I want God get them. Get them now, get them good. Give them three legs, you know. What he's really saying is because the spirit is, what's he doing? He's interceding for all of us. So if I start praying for the people I don't like, what's going to happen is a heart change. And my behaviors will follow suit. Why do you think he says, you know, when people persecute you, bless them? Because I can't do that in the natural. I'm going to need to depend on something here to do something that is inhuman. Well, no kidding. If it were human, we wouldn't need this. We need this. That's also why, and I'm, look, I'm Pentecostal. I do speak in tongues. I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I get really uh, agitated a little time when we just limit the Holy Spirit. That's all that he does. Speaking in tongues has some practical benefits, Right? Not a whole lot of them. I mean, I've never like walked up to someone at 7-Eleven and started talking in tongues. doesn't work. doesn't help. They just look at you like you have three heads and they walk away more opposed to Jesus than before I talk to them. Speaking in tongues does help me in times when I feel like I need to pray for something. I've run out of English. I don't even know how. Okay. It's also increased my stamina in my prayer life because what I found is that it just keeps going and going and going and going until I just decide I'm done. So that's a great benefit. But beyond that, that I mean, that's... We, but sometimes we just blow this in this huge, it's all about the tongues. It's all the, no, it isn't. I mean, it's not all about, what else did you get in there? There's all kinds of other things in there too. And that's what you and I need. That's what I really need. I need help to make me 
less like me and more like Jesus. And that can't come from me. It comes from God. I can't do it by myself. But I have a, he's just waiting for an invitation to come and fuse together with me and then for me to quiet my body and soul down enough to make them submit to the voice of the Holy Spirit inside of me. You don't have to be an expert in it. You just have to invite him in. He's not going to bulldoze over your thoughts because he's a gentleman. But the moment that you just say, I want to submit. I'm, sometimes you have to have a conversation with yourself. I'm not thinking that today. I'm thinking this. Like, I have a name for myself. And my, we'll get real personal. I have a name for myself. It's idiot. And a lot of times I find, you know, I spent lots of dollars and hours in counseling trying to work on this. And really what it drove down to is, it, it boiled down to, so how many times a day do you say that? And they figured out how to track that. I was like, yeah, you know, I just call myself idiot all the time. That's negative self-talk. And a term coined by someone who's not a believer who says, yourself has negative talk. Well, no kidding. The Bible says the same thing. How do I ever fix that? My counselor said, well, do you have a relationship with Jesus? I said, I do. You need to start listening to him because that's not what he's saying about you. So the problem wasn't with everybody else making me feel bad. The problem was that I was just letting myself tell me how to think about me. He's saying, you are my most wonderful creation. I love you and you are good enough as you are. You are more than a conqueror. You are forgivable. You are lovable. And you start tuning into that frequency, you know what happens? You start feeling better. Your body, you start smiling, even some of, some of us, it might break our face, but it, you know. <laughs> I had a pastor that asked me one time, he said, you love Jesus? I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, well, would you tell your face? <laughs> the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and So much, there's so much. Can I pray every? Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're not just around us. We thank you that you are willing to live inside of us. I'm nothing without you, nothing, nothing. There might be some of you in the room today who said, you know that I've never heard an invitation to salvation or Christianity that sounded like that. Friend, the Holy Spirit's just waiting for permission from you to come and live inside of you. To make your body his residence, his temple, so to speak. We don't need a, you don't need a building anymore. He can use your body as a temple. And if you want to have a relationship with Jesus and have his spirit fused together with you to help you be the person that he knows that you can be, here's the invitation you can make. You can say something simple like, Jesus, I recognize I've lived life my own way and that by nature, I'm sinful. I do what I think is best. And up to this point, that's it's either worked or hasn't worked, but man, this sounds like a much better way. And I recognize that's, I really need that. I really need you. And so I confess with my mouth, now you're Lord. You've always been Lord, but now I accept you as my Lord. I accept you as my Savior. I do believe in my heart that you're not dead, but that you're very much alive. So please, Come and fuse yourself together with my spirit and come live in the very essence and the deepest part of me, my spirit. And help me to be the person that you've always imagined that I could be, but that I can't be. 